you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 2, verses 7 to 12. If you're visiting us and you do not own a Bible, it is found on page 1046 in the Pew Bibles. And if you also don't own a Bible, please take it as a gift from us. So 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 7 to 12. If you have been to a black cookout or a family reunion, I can guarantee you that you would have likely heard the song, We Are Family. Y'all probably didn't think I was going to sing that, huh? (laughs) Y'all, the song is a staple in the black community. And the lyrics of the song, It talks about the noticeably closeness and love that a family has for one another. Y'all check out the lyrics. Listen real quick. In this song, they say, everyone can see we're together as we walk on by. And we fly just like the birds of a feather. I won't tell no lie. All of the people around us, they say, can they be that close? Just let me state for the record. We're giving love in a family dose. And y'all, this is actually how families ought to be. This genuine and sincere love, it is to be evident. Now the family, it was instituted by God at creation. It is in the context of family where it is to be love and caring for one another, looking out for each other. We are to comfort one another, and we are to give instruction. Now, if these things are true in the biological family, it should be even more the case in the household of faith. In the covenant community, I'm referring to the church where God has redeemed us through the blood of Christ. He has brought us into his family to where we are adopted sons and daughters in Christ Jesus. And Christ has united us together to where we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. This affection that we are to have for one another, it is to be sincere and to be set apart. It is because that we are family, and that family love is to be evident. And we will see these things in this morning's passage. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters. Working night and day so that we would not burden any of you, we preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You may be seated. So the big idea for this morning's passage 
is this. Our discipleship is to be characterized by love and godliness. Our discipleship is to be characterized by love and godliness. And if we're going to do this, the passage exhorts us to three specific actions that we'd be doing ongoingly. First, we are to love affectionately and live exemplary. And third, exhort continuously. We're to love affectionately, live exemplary, and exhort continuously. And so for a little bit of context, last time in 1 Thess chapter 2, we saw Paul defend his ministry and motives as he reminded the Thessalonians of their time together, where he spoke extensively about his motives in regards to ministry. Well, in this morning's passage, he's going to remind this congregation of his ministry and his conduct. And it is exemplary as it teaches us characteristics of good discipleship in the context of the local church, being the members of the congregation. So the first thing we are to do is love affectionately. Look at verse 7. Paul says, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you. Here he continues his defense as he was an apostle being an itinerant missionary going and proclaiming the gospel. He is an apostle, meaning he witnessed the resurrected Lord. He was commissioned by the resurrected Lord. This apostleship comes with real authority in the church. And yet Paul didn't use his authority that kind of way. Instead, he relinquished his apostolic prerogatives. He says, instead, we were gentle among you. Now, many of you may in that translation may have a footnote that says, or infant. And the reason is because in the Greek, the word gentle and infant is differentiated by one Greek letter. And in fact, most Greek translations of this verse uses the actual Greek word for infant. And so what Paul is doing here, He's using a metaphor of an infant to describe the usage of his authority with this congregation as he was with them. You see, he wasn't over them throwing his apostolic weight around. He wasn't delegating or demanding. Instead, he was like an infant. He was among them and on par with them. Here, Paul has humbled himself just like Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verse 27. When Jesus asked his disciples the question, for who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Here the apostle Paul didn't use his apostolic authority in this type of way, and he did it with the intentions to avoid being slandered for his ministry. Paul loved people, not the power. And y'all, this is a strong word for our day. How often do we hear of the abuse of pastoral authority in the context of a local church? 
Now, this authority is real, and it is to be stewarded well. We are to not be domineering as pastors. Instead, we are to be an example. The authority is to be used to bless and serve the congregation, reflecting our Lord Jesus who did not come to be served but to serve. The reality is, beloved, if we're going to love affectionately, we're to not walk with an air but with humility. So we're not seeing ourselves as above people but seeking to serve, counting others' interests more important than ourselves. Well, in verse 7, Paul goes on to use another metaphor to describe his affectionate care for the Thessalonians. Look at it with me. He says, as a nurse nurtures her own children. Now, in case you were wondering, it was not my intentions to preach the aspect of mothering in discipleship on Mother's Day. Planned the calendar many months ago, and last time I preached, I had to break up the section. But it was the Lord's intentions for me to preach this passage on this day. Have you been around a mom with the newborns? It is likely that you saw the tenderness, the affectionate care that the mom has for them, how they deal delicately with their child. I remember when my wife gave birth to both our kids, Jace and Braley, she had this tender and affection for them, nurtured them with compassion and care. She knew their frame intended to their very own needs. She fed them and tucked them and protected them. And the reason why she did it is because she loved them. And y'all, Paul is saying that he was like that with this congregation. That he was gentle in nurturing them. That he fed them with God's word and dealt delicately with this congregation because he loved them. And, y'all, this is how we are to be in our discipling relationships in the local church. Now, what Paul does here and what Paul says here actually debunks this assumption that masculinity is to be devoid of nurture and tenderness. Here we have a man saying that he was like a nurturing mother to this congregation. And think about the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 29, where he says that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Beloved, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. It is to be evidenced by brothers and sisters in the congregation in our relationships within the body. Now, brothers, this may not come naturally, but by God's grace, it's possible with effort, prayer, and walking by the Spirit. Paul says that we were as nursing nurturers, as a, my bad, I messed that up. Paul said that he was as a nurse nurturing her own children. Now, moms here, the question for you is, does this characterize your relationship with your children? Now, I know your kids are sinners. I know first and foremost because I got two of my own. And parenting can be very exhausting. But, beloved, there's still a blessing and inheritance from the Lord. And we have the responsibility to nurture them. And as you nurture them physically... May you not be less intentional to nurture them spiritually, teaching them God's word, working on scripture memory, doing catechism questions, and teaching them songs that make much of Jesus Christ. Now, some of us here, we hear and read this description, 
and it may cause sadness because we may have lost our moms. Others of us may be discouraged because in our home, it was more abusive than nurturing. And if that is you, I just want you to know, beloved, that God saw it, and he doesn't approve at all. In fact, his care is infinitely and eternally greater than any earthly mother could give. Here, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15, God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. And one of the most marvelous things about God's saving work, that in Christ Jesus, God restores what sin has ruined. And that includes family dynamics and experiences. As through the church, God has given us brothers and sisters and mothers to love and care for us and be this kind of way towards us. And there are some sisters in here who aspire to be moms, who are praying for it, to which I just want to encourage you continue to pray and continue to pray and wait upon the Lord. And as you wait, let this verse encourage you that you don't have to be a biological mom to be mothering in the congregation. Because Paul certainly wasn't a mom. It is biologically impossible for him to be a mother because he is a biological man and men don't have babies. Amen, <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> and yet he's saying to this congregation that he is like a nursing mom. So says you can be that way in discipling relationships in the context of the church, nurturing fellow sisters, and also serving in children's ministry to where you can nurture these, you can come alongside parents and nurture the next generation, teaching them God's word, caring for their souls, imparting these truths, knowing that these things done in faith actually pleases the Lord. And Paul's nurturing of this congregation he did not withhold himself. Look at verse 8. He says, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. Y'all, this is a deep and genuine love that Paul had for this congregation. The kind of love here is expected in the context of a family. And we see it here because the church is a family. And Paul makes known that he delightfully gave them two things, the gospel and their own lives, two of the most precious things that any Christian could ever give. First, the gospel, and second, our time and ourselves. Paul gave them the gospel out of a love for God and for them. He preached Christ crucified for sins, risen and reigning. Because it is the only message that saves any who believes. And it's the gospel by which we mature in Christ Jesus. As we seek to apply the gospel in every area of our life. And did you catch the motivation? It was love. He gave the message of God's love to God's people and he did it out of love for this people. Beloved, as you proclaim the gospel to one another... Are you motivated out of a love for the body? Are you doing it because you love them and you want them to grow in Christ? Because you care for their souls. 
Well, Paul also, he gave his very own life to the congregation. He says, we came pleased to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own lives. Now, the Greek word for lives here is suke, meaning souls. And what Paul is getting at is that he gave his entire self to this congregation. He opened up his lives to them. They did life together. And, y'all, this is discipleship. Truth in life transfers with members in the local church, with committed, to committed brothers and sisters that you have covenanted together to help each other follow Jesus because you love one another. It is doing life together for one another's good and growth in Christ. As a people, we are to be giving our lives to one another. And what does this look like for us? Well, we can, ha- I will, Gloria, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> well, one man, we can have one another over in our dinner table. Having each other in the home, even cooking meals together. Think about it, as you prepare to go grocery shopping, you can pick up a member on your way and do it together. Brothers and sisters who like working out, what is it like to work out together and talk about the Lord as you do so? Inviting members to be a part of your family worship. Getting together to study the scriptures together to encourage one another in spending time in prayer. This looks like enveloping members into your very own lives for their growth and good in Christ. It is wanting to be with us just as Jesus did with his apostles. Think about Mark chapter 3 verse 14, how he had the apostles be with him. Now, one of the great obstacles to this is busyness. You see, oftentimes we constantly fill up our calendars, which prevents us from actually doing life with one another. And so if we're going to do this, if we're going to do life together, it means that we need to create margin in our calendars. Because we prioritize members in the body. And not only to create margin and prioritize, we are to actually extend the invitation. It's not enough to just create margin and wait for somebody to invite you. Instead, you're to create that margin and extend the invitation for people to be with you, doing it out of love. Now, I know some brothers and sisters here who are a little bit more task-oriented. They hear these words, and they may begin to squirm in their seats. Say, man, that's a big-time commitment. And it sounds like a big inconvenience, knowing that if I were to do this, My efficiency and productivity will decrease. Beloved, the reality is it is a time commitment. And your efficiency and productivity will decrease. But it's also a worthy investment. As you are giving your lives to fellow brothers and sisters, it is for their good, for their encouragement, for their growth in Christ. Those things pleases the Lord as we're to be about each other's growth in Christ Jesus. Now, other brothers and sisters here who are a bit more people-oriented, they probably hear this and they're like, oh, yeah, sign me up. I can start this this afternoon. But you're like, man, praise God. Absolutely. Let's do life together. And as you do life together, it does require an intentionality in that time. It's not just hanging out all day and shooting the breeze. 
but it is talking about the Lord and the things of the Lord and talking about how you're applying God's word to your life in a particular situation. Beloved, may we be about this. And Paul here repeats it. He makes known why he did this. Look at verse 8. He concludes with, because you had become dear to us. Here's the kind of affections that pastors are to have for a congregation. And y'all, as I spend time with Pastor John, I can let you know that, man, your pastors really love y'all. It is a joy to get to serve as a pastor here. As we pray and labor towards you guys, is good. But it's not only an affection that pastors have for the congregation, it's also to be an affection that members have for each other. Because Christ has united us and we are a family. As we have made the commitment to exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. We've committed that way in our church covenant. And y'all get this. Paul said that the congregation had become dear to us. Here we see that these affections weren't microwaved. It didn't happen in an instant. This is the result of intentionally investing your life and doing life together over time, being together on the Lord's day and beyond. As Paul did this with this congregation, his affections deepened. It developed over time. This is the fruit of being committed to one another's good and doing life together. It is through this that we see that commitment is what produces intimacy and affection. Paul was committed to this congregation's good before these affections were developed. Think about it. He brought the gospel to Thessalonica. He preached and lived among him, and as he lived among them, these affections for them began to deepen. Now, beloved, the question is, can the same be said for you? Are you committed to members' good before the deep affections develop? And to have these deep affections, one may think that you have to have so many things in common. When the reality is, you only need to have Jesus in common. Think about, man, think about Paul and the Thessalonians. They couldn't be more different. Paul was a Jew. This congregation was predominantly Gentile. Paul was formerly a Pharisee. They were formerly pagans. And yet Paul is saying that he had a deep and abiding affection for this congregation. You see, these things happen as we do life, as we open our lives, as we talk about Jesus, as we be honest and vulnerable and seek to encourage and bear one another's burdens. We can have this here. I remember many years ago, there was a brother. We were both members of the same church, and I didn't even know that brother that well. Barely knew him at all. Had hardly anything in common. And, y'all, we began to get up regularly, studying God's word, meeting for lunches, doing life together and hanging out. To where over time, y'all, my affections for this brother grew deeply. And I never would have thought that that would have been the case because we had absolutely nothing in common. And yet the Lord began to do this in my heart towards this brother. To where my wife and I, when we moved away, he was one of the brothers that I would miss dearly. 
And my wife used to tell me, she said, man, Joshua, that was a gospel-revealed friendship. Because y'all had nothing in common but Jesus. And yet y'all did life together as if y'all are really close. And that brother became a dear friend. You see, this is possible by God's grace in our local church as we do life together and be honest and transparent and encourage one another in truth. And beloved, this is the kind of love that we are to have together because we are a family. We're to love one another affectionately because we are a family. Obeying the Lord Jesus to love one another just as Christ has loved us. May we pray for this kind of affection in the congregation. And may we labor towards it by doing life together. And just to be clear, this is my longest point. Next one's going to be a bit shorter. And so not only are we to love one another affectionately, but we are to live exemplary. Look at verse 9. Paul says, for you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we will not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. Paul had them recall their life together. And here, he's substantiating the claim that he made in verse 5 and 6, where he says, we didn't use flattering speech, we didn't have greedy motives, and we didn't seek glory from you. Here, Paul is getting, making known that they weren't actually greedy, in fact, they worked for their funds. Now, as an apostle, they had every right to be compensated for their ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14 says, The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. And here Paul is making known that he relieved this congregation of the financial burden. Instead, he worked for his own provision. In Acts chapter 18, we learn that Paul was actually a tent maker. That was his trade. And that was what he was doing as he lived with the Thessalonians. When he says labor and hardship, it is getting at manual labor that Paul himself exerted with his own hands. Getting at the exhaustion that came from this physical labor. He worked from sunup to sundown. And he did it for the good of the congregation. And as he worked, the work did not stifle the propagation of the gospel. He says, we preached God's gospel to you. Paul was committed to preaching Christ Jesus among this people because it was his assignment from God as he was an apostle of Christ. Christ was who Paul loved because Christ was his Lord, and so it was Christ who Paul proclaimed. And in this one verse, what we see is a combination of manual labor and gospel ministry. You see, labor shouldn't stifle our propagation of the gospel. It shouldn't stifle our evangelism in the congregation. But it does take intentional effort, prayer, and faithfulness that we can work night and day and still do life together and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to one another. Working night and day and still seeking and aiming to do spiritual good to your fellow brothers and sisters. Using your early mornings or your late nights or even your lunch towards that very end as you seek to get up with brothers and sisters in the congregation. And not only that, but our work shouldn't stifle the advancement of the gospel and where the Lord has placed us in evangelism. God in his providence placed us 
purposefully where we are that people may seek Christ. And the way they seek Christ is by learning about him from our proclamation. So may our antennas be up as we seek to share the good news of Christ with fellow co-workers. Now, Thessalonians, they remember this. They could attest to Paul's work, but they could also attest to Paul's life because he lived openly before them, and so they saw his godly character. Look at verse 10. It says, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. Here we see that the discipleship wasn't from afar, but it was up close. The Thessalonians had front row seats to Paul's life. They saw his godly conduct. They affirmed that Paul and the companions walked in godliness. They affirmed it, and so could God, because God saw it all. In this section of chapter 2, we see that God has a loving 24-hour surveillance camera over his people. Chapter 2, verse 4, it was God who examined their hearts. Chapter 2, verse 5, it was God who could witness to them not using flattering speech or had greedy motives. And in this verse here, it is God who can testify that they had godly conduct. You see, the Christian life is lived in the presence of God continuously. The Latin word gets at coram dio, which is life, the Christian life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the honor and glory of God. Which is the aim of all Christians is to honor God in all areas of our lives, both public and private. We want to honor the Lord in our interactions with our family members and fellow church members, in our workplaces and on social media, in our politics, in all areas of life. Our aim is to be to honor and glorify God because we love him in response to his saving work in our lives. Beloved, this conduct of being devout and righteous and blameless, it is the evidence of God's saving work. You see, when one gets a new heart in Christ Jesus, when God regenerates us, when he removes the heart of stone and gives the heart of flesh, it is accompanied with new affections and is to be displayed in new, the new way of living. You see, godliness is a fruit of Christ's saving work. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Beloved, we are to live exemplary, compelled by grace out of a love for Jesus, aiming to look like Christ. And as we live exemplary by God's grace, we are to want fellow members to see it. We want to bring them along and show how the gospel informs every area of our lives. Because our aim is to be like Jesus. There's a question to consider. As beloved, do these three adverbs describe your conduct? Could members affirm your conduct being lived out this kind of way? And if so, praise God. And keep at it by God's grace. 
If not, why not? What besides the Lord has your allegiance and devotion? And also know that it is not too late to begin living this out by God's grace. If these three adverbs don't mark your your conduct, the first thing I would encourage you to do is meditate on the gospel of Christ. How Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Meditate on his sacrifice. Think about the reality that he bought us. In him we have redemption. And I would also encourage you to reach out to a brother or sister who's living this out and seek to get time with them and seek to imitate their way of life and their faith. To where by God's grace these things can begin to grow in you more and more. To where you're looking more and more like Jesus. Here we see that Paul and his companions, they lived an exemplary life. And in this verse, we see the close connection of content and conduct, as both are vitally important. It is the content is to inform how we live. And it's by our conduct that gives credibility to our message. This is important for pastors as we're to seek to be examples for the congregation, and it's also important for members because it is fruit of faith. Beloved, as we faithfully follow Jesus, it is good to have members to be with us that they may see how we live. Now, we don't do this to exalt ourselves, and the reality is if you do this, they're not going to see perfection because you're a sinner. But prayerfully, they see direction, that we are growing more and more in the likeness of Jesus Christ. That is evident in godly conduct, and also prayerfully, they see our repentance when we fall short. That we will make it known to them and confess our sins to God and to them. You see, we are to live this way because we want Jesus to use us in our lives for his purposes to build up his people. Praying that God will use the spur on members to live for the Lord all the more, all for the glory of God. So we are to live exemplary. Not only are we to live exemplary, we are also to exhort continuously. Look at verse 11 and 12. Paul says, as you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged comforted and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God. Here Paul is making known that him and his companions, they exercised an an affectionate and paternal care for this congregation. The type of instruction and training during that time was the father's responsibility. In ancient times, they would see that moral training was the father's duty. We saw it in the scripture reading in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to intentionally and regularly talk about God's saving work with your children. Think about the book of Proverbs. If you were to read the book of Proverbs, what you will see is a parent giving wise instruction to their children. So often in the book of Proverbs, the Proverbs are directed to their children. You will constantly see the phrase, my son, my son, my son, my son. And also think about Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, where fathers are commanded to not stir up their children to anger, but to bring up their children 
in the training and instruction of the Lord. This instruction is to be done in kindness and tenderness. So we're teaching our children God's word and the applications. We can do this through scripture memory, catechisms, explaining how scripture informs our worldview on everything. Being an example for our children and exhorting our children to obey our instructions. This is what Paul did for the congregation. And this is the expectation for fathers with their children. So the question for fathers, do you do this with your children? We should be doing this. It could be easy to be intentional in training our kids to love sports, training our kids to be good and cleaning up and be doing good handiwork. These things are good, and as we do that, may we not negate training our children in the Lord. Because if we were to negate training our children in the Lord, then we are missing part of God's purposes for fatherhood. Now, some of you, you may be wondering, like, man, so if that is the case, then how do I start? And I would just give a simple instruction of read the Bible to your kids, pray with your kids, and sing a song with the kids. Read, pray, and sing. It don't have to be so elaborate. It could be that simple. And then as you do life with your kids, begin to explain to them more and more what God's word says and how we are to live. I'd also encourage you to reach out to other fathers. Learn how they're discipling their kids. And see if that'll work for you as you seek to apply it. Now, a number of brothers and sisters here, Y'all may have had this modeled in your home, to which I would say, praise the Lord. That is so encouraging. Others probably didn't get it because their dad may have passed away, may have been absent or abusive. To which, oh, just man, the, the Lord saw it. But also know that in Christ, God is our adopted father. There's no greater father than God. He constantly loves us. He comforts us. As we read his word, he's constantly imploring and exhorting us. So may we take comfort in God being our adopted father. And other brothers here, you may desire to do this and to be a father, to which I would encourage you to continue to pray and also know that you can be doing this in the congregation. As you disciple in brothers, constantly be encouraging, exhorting, imploring, and comforting. Also, as I said with the moms, children's ministry is a great area to live these things out to where you can instruct the next generation. And many of you, in your testimonies, you guys came to saving faith in Christ Jesus because God used a children's ministry worker or, volunteer, or student ministry volunteer to live this out with you. And so you know that you can do that very same thing for the children here at NBC. Now this exhortation and the instruction, these are vital components in discipleship as we are to have a concern for one another's walk in following Christ and to care for their souls. Think about Ephesians chapter 4 verses 15 and 16 where we are to speak the truth in love to help one another grow. Growth in Christ comes as we speak God's word to each other. 
And we're to do this ongoingly. Think about a father's instruction. It doesn't stop once their child becomes an adult. And if their instruction is continual, so should our exhortations in the context of the local church. Constantly exhorting one another to grow in love and follow Jesus all the way until glory. But what does this look like? This looks like meeting members where they're at. And continually using our words to encourage them. To live in light of the truths that we see in scripture. It looks like in pain, sitting with them. Being present. Hugging them. Comforting them with the words of hope that is found in Jesus. And constantly imploring one another to pursue holiness as pleases the Lord by faith. Warning each other of the dangers of sin's temptation and the destruction of sin as we fix our gaze upon the return of the Lord Jesus. Beloved, does this description mark your relationships in the congregation? Are you constantly exhorting, encouraging, comforting, and imploring one another to walk worthy of God? For we need this. God in his wisdom has given us one another that we may do this together. We need someone outside of us to remind us of the truth of God's word. We need someone outside of us to continuously implore us to walk worthy of God. All the way until our king comes. You see, in this section, though brothers and sisters in the Lord, Paul makes known that they were like the Thessalonians' spiritual parents. They exercised this affectionate care because they were a family. Now, they weren't their actual spiritual parents like God was their adopted father. And in this section, we see how they actually relate to one another. In verse 9, he calls them brothers and sisters. Paul and his companions weren't greater than them. They were on par with them, and yet they loved this congregation dearly. And we are to be the same way in our congregation. You see, this section is drenched with love and affectionate care as Paul is making known that he has opened his heart to these people. He's communicating his affectionate love for them and his instruction to them because he loves them. Beloved, is that evident among us? Or it ought to be. And we see that the exhortation is purposeful as it has a Godward orientation. Look at verse 12 one more time. He says, we encouraged and comforted and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, the walking worthy of God is not earning salvation in any way. Rather, it's an exhortation to reflect God's character because Christ has saved us. We've been set free from sin's bondage through Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. And this salvation is to inform our living. We are to do this in light of what God has done for us. And the passage makes known, what did God do? He called us into his own kingdom and glory. You see, in God's grace, he effectually summoned us through the preaching of the gospel, bringing us into his heavenly kingdom where Christ reigns. You see, our Savior came and he inaugurated the kingdom through his coming, his death, and his resurrection. This is an end times kingdom that is breaking into this age. 
And we who have trusted in Jesus, we are citizens of that kingdom. And being a citizen comes with present-day realities as we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are to walk in love. We are to grow in holiness. And he's calling us to ongoingly live in submission to his rule and reign for his glory and our good. It is because eternal life in the kingdom is our eternal destiny that it is to be our present day direction. That we are to walk worthy because Christ has called us. You know, one of my favorite TV shows from a few years ago was the TV show Parenthood. And in Parenthood, my favorite character was Zeke Braverman. And one of the things that Zeke would constantly do is that he would constantly remind his family, his sons and his grandchildren, who they are. You'll see it. You probably know the phrase. He'd say, you are a Braverman. And it's because you are a Braverman, that is to impact how you are to live. You see, he would make known that being a Braverman means something. And you should live that out. We hear Paul is reminding us our identity, that God has called us, that we are adopted sons and daughters, that we are citizens of God's kingdom. And that identity is to inform our living, that we are to walk worthily of the calling that he has given us because he has called us into his kingdom. And here Paul models for us what we are to do as a congregation His gaze is fixed on that final day, and he's encouraging them to walk walk in holiness as that day comes. And y'all, this is what we're to do. Continuously exhorting one another as we see the day drawing near. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says, And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Beloved, that final day of God's consummation, of of Christ consummating the kingdom, that final day is coming. And what are we to do in anticipation? We are to exhort continuously as we see that day approaching. Now, if you know yourself to not be a Christian, Friends, I am glad you are here, and I want you to know that the invitation for you this very day is to become a citizen of God's eternal kingdom, to be adopted into the family of God. And that is a benefit for all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. God in his love sent his son to become a man, to suffer and die for sinners as he was crucified on the cross and resurrected from the grave. Your sins can be forgiven. You can no longer be an enemy but become a son or a daughter in Christ Jesus. The only way that that happens is by trusting in the son. Friends, I would implore you this very day, be reconciled to God by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And beloved, we are family. May this Christ-like familial love that we see in this passage be evident in our congregation. 
may be so evident that when visitors come in and when non-Christians see us living out our love for one another, it testifies to them. They can see that we're followers of Jesus because that love is set apart and sincere because Christ has saved us. May we do this by his grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we praise you for your saving work in Christ. How you loved us and pursued us. As you have shown your love by sending your son and reconciling us and adopting us into your coming kingdom. Father, we pray that we would love affectionately. And that we would walk in humility. God, we pray that our love for one another will be evident. And that we will continuously encourage one another all the more as we see the day draw near where our King Christ Jesus return. Help us, O oh Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.